Lesson 12 for September 9 through to 15, Living by the Spirit. Sabbath afternoon, September 9. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're coming towards the end of this study in Galatians, and as a church we've studied it many times in Sabbath school lessons. But we thank you that in this series we learn more about what the gospel is about. We learn more about your unconditional love for us. And we love you and we serve you. Bless us now as we open your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text today is Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's read that again, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. One of the most beloved Christian hymns is Robert Robinson's Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Robinson, however, was not always a man of faith. The death of his father left him angry, and he fell into debauchery and drunkenness. After hearing the famous preacher George Whitefield, Robinson surrendered his life to the Lord, became a Methodist pastor, and wrote that hymn which originally included the lines, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Uncomfortable with the line about the Christian's heart wandering, someone changed the words to read, Prone to worship, Lord, I feel it. Prone to love, the God I serve. Despite the editor's good intentions, the original words accurately describe the Christian struggle. As believers, we possess two natures, the flesh and the spirit, and they are in conflict. Although our sinful nature always will be prone to wander from God, if we are willing to surrender to His Spirit, we do not have to be enslaved to the desires of the flesh. This is the thrust of Paul's message in the texts for this week. Sunday, September 10, Walking in the Way Question. Read Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. What does the concept of walking have to do with a life of faith? And we'll also compare that with some other texts. Galatians 5, 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfil the lust of the flesh. And Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. You shall work after the Lord your God and fear him, and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage, to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from our midst. And Romans thirteen thirteen. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. 
Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And Ephesians 4 verse 17, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And Colossians 1 verse 10, That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Walking is a metaphor drawn from the Old Testament that refers to the way a person should behave. Paul himself, a Jew, makes use of this metaphor even in his letters to describe the type of conduct that should characterise the Christian life. His use of this metaphor is also likely connected to the first name that was associated with the early church. Before the followers of Jesus were called Christians in Acts 11.26, they were known simply as followers of the way in John 14 verse 6, Acts 22 verse 4 and Acts 24 verse 14. This suggests that at a very early date, Christianity was not merely a set of theological beliefs that centred on Jesus, but was also a way of life to be walked. Question In what way is Paul's metaphor about walking different from those found in the Old Testament? So, first of all, we'll compare Exodus 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And Leviticus chapter 18 verse 4, You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And Jeremiah 44 verse 23, Because you have burned incense and because you have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in his law, in his statutes or in his testimonies, Therefore, this calamity has happened to you as at this day. And we're going to compare that with Galatians 5, verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And Romans 8, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Conduct in the Old Testament was not defined as simply walking, but more particularly as walking in the law. Halakha, H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H, is the legal term Jews use to refer to the rules and regulations found in both the law and the rabbinic traditions of their forefathers. While Halakha, usually is translated the Jewish law, the word actually is based on the Hebrew word for to walk, and literally means the way of going. Paul's comments about walking in the Spirit are not contrary to obedience to the law. He is not proposing that Christians should live in a way that violates the law. Again, Paul is not opposed to the law or to obedience to the law. What he is opposed to is the legalistic way in which the law was being misused. The genuine obedience that God desires never can be achieved by outward compulsion. 
but only by inward motivation produced through the Spirit, as we read in Galatians 5 and verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so to finish today, what has been your own experience of walking in the Spirit? How do you do that? What practices in your life make this kind of walk more difficult? Monday, September 11, The Christian Conflict Our text for today is Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. We're going to compare that with Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through to 24. For we know that the law is spiritual, for I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the question is, how have you in your own life as a believer experienced the harsh and painful reality of these words? The struggle that Paul describes is not the struggle of every human being. It refers specifically to the inward tug of war that exists in the Christian. Because humans are born in harmony with the desires of the flesh, as it says in Romans 8-7, it is only when we are born anew by the Spirit that a real spiritual conflict begins to emerge, as it says in John 3 verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This does not mean that non-Christians never experience moral conflict. They certainly do. But even that conflict is ultimately a result of the Spirit. The struggle of the Christian, however, takes on a new dimension, because the believer possesses two natures that are at war with each other, the flesh and the Spirit. Throughout history, 
Christians have longed for relief from this struggle. Some have sought to end the conflict by withdrawing from society, while others have claimed that the sinful nature can be eradicated by some divine act of grace. Both attempts are misguided. Though by the Spirit's power we certainly can subdue the desires of the flesh, the conflict will continue in various ways until we receive a new body at the second coming. Fleeing from society does not help, because no matter where we go, we take the struggle with us, and we will, until death or the second coming. When Paul writes in Romans 7 about the inward conflict in Christians as preventing them from doing what they want, he is underscoring the full extent of that conflict. Because we possess two natures, we are literally on both sides of the battle at once. The spiritual part of us desires what is spiritual and detests the flesh. The fleshly part of us, however, longs for the things of the flesh and opposes what is spiritual. Because the converted mind is too weak to resist the flesh by itself, the only hope we have of subduing the flesh is by making a daily decision to side with the spirit against our sinful selves. This is why Paul is so insistent that we choose to walk in the Spirit. So to finish today, from your own experience of the battle between these two natures, what advice would you give to a Christian who is trying to come to terms with this never-ending struggle with self? Tuesday, September 12, The Works of the Flesh Having introduced the conflict that exists between the flesh and the spirit, Paul elaborates on the nature of this contrast in Galatians chapter 5, verses 18 through to 26, by means of a list of ethical vices and virtues. The catalogue of vices or virtues was a well-established literary feature present in both Jewish and Greco-Roman literature. These lists identified behaviour to be avoided and virtues to be emulated. Question. Carefully examine the vice and virtue list in the passages below. In what ways are Paul's lists in Galatians 5, 19-24 similar to yet different from these other lists? Galatians 5, 19-24 Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And we're going to compare that with 
Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 9, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And Hosea 4 verse 2, By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. And Mark chapter 7 verses 21 to 22, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behaviour, hospitable, able to teach. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. And First Peter chapter 4 and verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And finally, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelievers, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Although Paul was well aware of vice and virtue lists, there are significant differences in the way he uses the two lists in Galatians. First, even though Paul contrasts the two lists, He does not refer to them in the same manner. He labels the vice list as the works of the flesh, but the virtue list as the fruit of the Spirit. This is an important distinction. As James D. G. Dunn writes in the Epistle of the Galatians, page 308, the flesh demands, but the Spirit produces. Where the one list breathes in air of anxious self-assertiveness and frenetic self-indulgence, the other speaks more of concern for others, serenity, resilience, reliability. The one features human manipulation, the other divine enabling or engracing, reinforcing the point that inner transformation is the source of the responsible conduct. End of quote. The second intriguing difference between Paul's two lists is that the vice list is deliberately labelled as plural in number, works of the flesh. Fruit of the Spirit, however, is singular. This difference may suggest that the life lived in the flesh can promote nothing more than division, turmoil, divisiveness and disunity. In contrast, the life lived in the realm of the Spirit produces one fruit of the Spirit, which manifests itself in nine qualities that foster unity. In this context, some people claim that what a person believes about God doesn't really matter as long as he or she is sincere. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul's list of vices suggests the opposite. Corrupt views about God lead to distorted ideas about sexual behaviour, religion and ethics, resulting in the breakdown of human relationships. Furthermore, such ideas can lead to the loss of eternal life, as it said in Galatians 5.21. So, to finish today, look through the list of works of the flesh. 
In what ways can you see each as a violation of one or more of the Ten Commandments? Wednesday, September 13, The Fruit of the Spirit Our text for today is Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Verses 22 and 23 read, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The question is, In what ways does obedience to the Ten Commandments reflect the fruit of the Spirit as it is expressed in these words? Well, we'll look at some other texts as well. First of all, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. And Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Matthew chapter 22 Uh, verses 35 to 40. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The Ten Commandments are not an alternative to love. They help guide us in how we are to show love, both to God and to mankind. However much it might transcend the letter of the law, love is not in conflict with the law. The idea that love for God and love for our neighbour void the Ten Commandments makes about as much sense as saying that love for nature voids the law of gravity. Also, in contrast to the fifteen one-word descriptions of the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is described in nine elegant virtues. Scholars believe these nine virtues are organised into three clusters of three – but there is little agreement on the significance of their order. Some see an implicit reference to the Trinity in the number three. Others believe the three triads reflect the ways in which we should relate to God, to our neighbour, and finally to ourselves. Still others see the list as essentially a description of Jesus. Though each of these views has some merit, The most significant point not to be overlooked is the supreme importance Paul places on love in the Christian life. The fact that Paul lists love as the first of the nine virtues is not accidental. 
He already has highlighted the central role of love in the Christian life in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 and verse 13. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And he includes it in his virtue lists elsewhere in Second Corinthians chapter six and First Timothy four and First Timothy six and Second Timothy chapter two. Whereas all the other virtues appear also in non Christian sources, love is distinctly Christian. All this indicates that love should be seen not merely as one virtue among many but as the cardinal Christian virtue that is the key to all other virtues. Love is the preeminent fruit of the Spirit, as we read in 1 Corinthians 13.13. And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And it should define the life and attitudes of every Christian, as we read in John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. However difficult it might be at times to show love. And so to finish today, how much self-denial is involved in love? Can you love without self-denial? What does Jesus teach us about love and self-denial? Thursday, September 14, The Way to Victory Although an inward conflict between the flesh and the spirit always will rage in the heart of every believer, the Christian life does not have to be dominated by defeat, failure and sin. Question. According to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through to 26, what is the key to living a life in which the spirit reigns over the flesh. Galatians 5, beginning at verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26, contains five key verbs that describe the type of life in which the Spirit reigns. First, the believer needs to walk in the Spirit in verse 16. The Greek verb is peripateo, P-E-R-I-P-A-T-E-O, which literally means to walk around or to follow. The followers of the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle came to be known as the Peripatetics because they followed Aristotle everywhere he went. The fact that the verb is in the present tense implies that Paul is not talking about an occasional walk, but rather a continuous daily experience. In addition, since it is also a command to walk in the Spirit, it implies that walking in the Spirit is a choice we have to make on a daily basis. The second verb is to be led in verse 18. This suggests that we also need to allow the Spirit to lead us where we should go. Uh, We read about this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And 1 Corinthians 12 verse 2, You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. It is not our job to lead, then, but to follow. The next two verbs appear in Galatians chapter 5 verse 25. The first is to live, That's Z-A-O, Zeo in Greek. By live, Paul is referring to the new birth experience that must mark the life of every believer. Paul's use of the present tense points to a new birth experience that is to be renewed daily. Additionally, because we live by the Spirit, Paul goes on to write that we also need to walk by the Spirit. The word translated as walk is different from the one in verse 16. Here the word is stoicheo, S-T-O-I-C-H-E-O. It is a military term that literally means to draw up in a line, to keep in step or to conform. The idea here is that the Spirit not only gives us life, but should direct our lives on a daily basis also. The verb Paul uses in verse 24 is to crucify. This is a little shocking. If we are to follow the Spirit, we must make a firm decision to put to death the desires of the flesh. Of course, Paul is speaking figuratively. We crucify the flesh by feeding our spiritual life and by starving the desires of the flesh. And so to finish today. What changes and choices must you make in order to have the victories you are promised in Christ? Victories that now continually elude you. Friday, September 15. From the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1111, Ellen White comments, The life of the Christian is not all smooth. He has stern conflicts to meet. 
Severe temptations assail him. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. The nearer we come to the close of this earth's history, the more delusive and ensnaring will be the attacks of the enemy. His attacks will grow fiercer and more frequent. Those who resist light and truth will become more hardened and unimpressionable, and more bitter against those who love God and keep His commandments. And by the same author on the next page, the influence of the Holy Spirit is the life of Christ in the soul. We do not see Christ and speak to Him, but His Holy Spirit is just as near us in one place as in another. It works in and through every one who receives Christ. Those who know the indwelling of the Spirit reveal the fruits of the Spirit love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. And that brings us to our discussion questions this week, and there are four of them. Dwell more on the idea of crucifying the desires of the flesh. What does that mean? How do we do it? How often do we have to do it? Why would Paul use such a strong verb? What does his use of the word crucify tell us about just how hard the battle with self is? And question two, what role, if any, does human effort play in producing the fruit of the Spirit? What does your own experience tell you about this role? And question three, Paul says that those who practice the works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. How do you reconcile this statement with the fact that Paul says, We are saved by faith and not by works? And question four, In your own walk with the Lord, what's the biggest struggle you face? Is it not sin and what sin does to your relationship with God? What Christian hasn't felt alienation? doubt and disappointment as a result of the sin in his or her life, especially because we have the promise of victory over that sin. Given this fact in the context of victory over sin, why must we always remember that our salvation rests totally upon what Jesus has done for us? And to summarise this week's lesson, although in the life of all believers a conflict exists between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit, The Christian life does not have to be doomed to failure. Because Christ has conquered the power of sin and death, the Christian life can be a life in which the Spirit reigns, bringing us a daily supply of God's grace to enable us to keep the desires of the flesh at bay. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Match Made in Heaven, Part 1 From the time she was a young girl, Sahana loved God and attended church every Sunday. Sometimes, however, she wished that the worship service wasn't so loud and exuberant. Sahana finished her studies and took a teaching position at a women's college. She lived with her parents, as is the custom in India. She knew that soon her parents would choose a husband for her. Sahana enjoyed her work at the college and made many friends there. She especially liked Marina, another teacher at the school. One day Marina fell ill with malaria and was admitted to the hospital. Sahana went to the hospital to visit her friend. 
While waiting outside Marina's room, she met a man who was also waiting. They started talking. Sahana learned that the man's name was Michael and that he was a writer of religious books. What church do you belong to? Sahana asked. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, Michael said. Sahana wanted to know more about this man's religion, but in her culture, it isn't appropriate for a single girl to talk to a man for more than a few minutes, so her questions would have to wait. Soon, she was able to visit Marina. However, Sahana couldn't stop thinking about this young man and wondering about his church. Sahana had read the Bible and she had many questions that her pastor couldn't answer. Perhaps Michael's church would have the answers. Sahana decided that when Marina felt better, she would ask her more about Michael and his faith. When Sahana saw Marina on campus again, she cornered her friend. I met your friend Michael while waiting to see you in the hospital. He told me that he's a Seventh-day Adventist. What is a Seventh-day Adventist? Do you know anything about this church? A little, Marina answered. I've been attending the Adventist church for a year now. They worship on Saturday because the Bible tells us to keep the seventh day holy. Oh, Sahana said, surprised. I've read about the seventh day in the Bible, and I have a lot of questions. Can you answer them? Marina tried to answer Sahana's questions. Then she said, The people at the Adventist church are friendly and kind. My husband has joined the church, but since I work on Saturdays, I haven't joined. I'm not ready to give up my job. Does this church teach about the books of Daniel and Revelation? Sahana asked with excitement. I don't understand them, and I would like to know what they mean. And this story is to be continued after next week's Sabbath school lesson. Make sure you study that, and we'll see you then. Remember, God is always faithful. This lesson was read by Dr. Percy Harrell. It was recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind. This podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel.